Ever since last year's ruling from the Supreme Court, which paved the way for states to ban abortion, confusion among the medical community in certain states is at an all-time high regarding the treatments they are able to provide. The same goes for those working for the Veterans Health Administration. To get a sense on how VA facilities are handling the ongoing changes, the Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General recently conducted a review of its reproductive care for female veterans. I got the chance to speak with Julie Kroviak, Principal Deputy Assistant Inspector General for the Office of Healthcare Inspections at VAOIG, about what the review found. So VA has made it an initiative to provide some more care for female veterans, certainly more than they have in the past, and there are more female veterans than ever before. But this also, I believe, branches out into other areas. Let's just start from the beginning and tell me you know, how this audit was initiated and what you all were looking for. So let me just stop. It really wasn't an audit. So within okay. the Office of Healthcare Inspections, we do inspections or reviews. And I only, you know, I don't play semantics with that. I just want to say up front, this was intended to be a descriptive review. So there isn't really any validation of the data that was provided to us. So when facility leaders might have thrown numbers out or service lines, we didn't go and check it. We really wanted to talk about their perceptions of what barriers exist to providing a wide variety of reproductive health care services to veterans. So we really weren't locking it into women. And there are a couple of places where that becomes more apparent in the report itself. We have a women's health group within OIG that these are you know, dedicated professionals who look at allegations specific to care for women veterans, national topics, you know, things that are on the healthcare horizon that are really relevant to women veterans. And we listen to, you know, VSOs, we have roundtables, we try to get information on what's really, really important to women veterans. We try to conduct projects on that. So prior to even the IFR and you know, the decision in 2022 to limit access for uh, abortions, we were planning work to look at reproductive health care across the system. Just didn't know quite what angle we were going to use. But with women being the fastest growing demographic in the VA, it started to make sense that this was the right time to look at this across the system. All right. And so what was your methodology for taking a snapshot of access to VHA's reproductive care? It's a great question because typically when we look at things on a national landscape, we try to sample a random sample so that, you know, we can put out conclusions and even then which would prompt recommendations that would suggest we could aggregate that data and apply it across the system. But we didn't play that way for very specific reasons. We wanted to a capture a mix of sizes and complexities of facilities. So we wanted to include facilities that offer level one trauma services, but also have much more restricted options, you know, availability of resources. We wanted to hit urban and rural centers. And then with the issue with abortion, we wanted to touch a variety of systems across the country that were either going to be likely stable in their ability at a state level to provide abortion services we're in the middle of the road of that decision, you know, as we understood it, and we're likely going to increase their restrictions on those services. So that was our sample. That was our approach to making sure we had a, a good non-randomized sample to really tell a story. And we did that through interviews mostly. So we went, ultimately chose 26 facilities across the country and we also wanted to make sure that we included every VISN. So VISNs are those Veterans Integrated Service Networks. Those are the regional collections of hospitals. So we wanted to make sure we hit at least one facility 
in each vision as well. To describe what we did, we went in, we did interviews. We looked at facility, we talked to facility leaderships, the director, chief of staff. We wanted to make sure we got the women's health medical directors, the chiefs of primary care, where a lot of these provisions are managed. And then, of course, chiefs of urology. So urology services played a big role in this review as well. So you had your sample size and your methodology for finding out what were some of the reproductive care services or the state of reproductive care services that you all saw? What were the, um, I guess, results of those interviews? Pretty much what you would expect for any type of facility, regardless of complexity. Most of the facilities had limited issues with taking care of the contraception needs and preconception care. Sexual dysfunction, they typically were very comfortable and well-suited to provide those services. Maternity care, well-served. And I don't mean that they provide it, but there's a process in place that when a woman veteran is pregnant, that they have the processes in place to refer them out to get to the care they need. And then just genuine pelvic urinary health, certainly management of menopause. When I talk about those 600,000 women, half of them are childbearing age. The other half are not. So menopause is, you know, something that facility providers have to be well-versed on in managing. And then throw on now with the IFR, the pregnancy options, including not only the procedures, but the counseling for those procedures. So we wanted to talk about all of those with all of these leaders to understand where there were barriers and where there were not. And that's basically what we did. All right. And I know that the IG did not issue any recommendations on this topic for a myriad of reasons. But what were some of the challenges that you heard from the interviews that you conducted? Were there some people who felt that they were not hearing from leadership maybe on what they were allowed to do or things of that nature? That's basically the gist of it. So for the things that we consider routine reproductive health, the barriers were what you would see in other facilities for other healthcare services. Mm. So You're in a rural area. Yeah, it can be really tough to find a gynecologist, but that's because of the area. There's shortages of providers at a facility. There might be shortages of providers in that area. But when the conversations got really sticky, and I don't mean sticky politically, but when they described where they're finding barriers, it's out of confusion and it's out of concern for their providers who are would potentially be meeting patients who were in need and met requirements for abortion services, counseling and the procedures, medical or procedure itself. And so when they did run into those barriers and, you know, they had a patient that in their medical opinion is in need of abortion services, you know, and they are not necessarily in an area that they can provide them. Do they have a standard practice for handling that or is that where the confusion? Yeah, so no, there was no standard. It's evolving. So and again, so we were doing these interviews in March. So that's six months after the IFR. So at that point, we still found leaders who mostly explain to us the concerns their providers brought forward, depending on the state they were licensed in, because VA providers don't have to be licensed in the state they practice, and depending on the state they're practicing in, and depending on the availability of resources. So what we saw facilities who were already tested in this space, they were usually either able to do it at their own facility, able to refer within the vision, or 
accessing community care if they had to use a facility or resource that had to be over state lines for a wide variety of reasons that were influenced by the recent Dobbs decision. And so it sounds as if a lot of the issues that they had are the same issues that you hear from just doctors in that same area. So it seems like it's just they're a symptom of a geographic crisis that the medical care community in, in general is facing down in those areas. Yeah. And basically, you know, it gets confusing because we have this IFR. So these providers, you know, have some guise of protection, but it really hasn't been tested yet. So the fear and the frustration of the unknown and the lack of guidance, the lack of training, it seems to be a real presence within these VA facilities for the providers who feel they might be put on the line to be part of a test. So while there are, quote unquote, guaranteed protections, it would still have to be tested. And that can be a painful process for a provider. We're talking about, am I going to go to jail for performing a procedure? But also, is this going to be reported to a state licensing board? Like, what are the implications? And no one's giving really concrete guidance to these people or to the leaders who they're looking to to get that guidance. So let's bring the focus to leadership. Did the VA have any response or did they mention how they're yeah. going? So no response from VA. Did they, you know, how do you think that they'll be using these results? And or is this just a review for your all's purposes? It wasn't for our purposes. We very rarely do work that just suits us. It was really meant to inform stakeholders that there are significant concerns we have with confusion across the system. You know, you would think, well, why didn't you put the recommendation in? And you're right, there's a ton of reasons we didn't, but it's still an evolving issue. It was just meant to remind or inform leaders that you've got providers out there who are really in need of guidance and their local leaders don't have the information enough to provide it to them. So we've got to get this together to make sure that, A, veterans are getting the care they need and providers are protected while doing it, or at least understand what the protections are. We did give this to VHA to review and they were welcomed to comment on it. They chose not to. I wouldn't weigh too deeply into that because when we have exchanges with VHA in our drafts, it really is to respond to recommendations to lay out action plans. So I think our sharing the draft was just to make sure that they didn't find anything erroneous in our description, which they really couldn't because it's a perceptions thing. But I don't want to lay it out that VA was unresponsive or dismissive of this work. Julie Kroviak is Principal Deputy Assistant Inspector General for the Office of Healthcare Inspections at the Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General. We'll post this interview along with a link to the report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating 
and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply 
that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture 
and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model 
has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.